So let's open in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, another day in your house. Lord, I ask that you would uh, teach us what you would have us to know. And I ask that you would uh, be with uh, Dave, our teacher, and, and our pastors, and, and the whole service this morning. That would be honoring and glorifying to you in Jesus' name. Well, when I was trying to come up with the introduction for this morning, you know I often go to the Psalms, and uh, and I was actually debating about a couple of different passages this morning, just based upon the events of the week and the events that I know are going on in people's lives, and uh, and it's totally unrelated to First Samuel, so I thought. I'll do it. Uh, I, I know I pick on the Psalms a lot, but I, I think I'd like to take a look at Psalm 103 this morning to just kind of open us up and set the uh, attitude and, and uh, mindfulness that we need this morning as we approach God's Word. Would somebody like to read Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your ears with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. Just as the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and his place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, and to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength to perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen. Um, <clears throat> been reflecting on, on different uh, characters in the Bible and, uh, and the calling of God on our lives. And that uh, one of the things, I think we're in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, I wouldn't know. Well, I, I tend to get bogged down sometimes. And so, are we really in 23? We are. And uh, one of the, the themes that you see uh, pop out um, in uh, chapter 23 is uh, the will of God and how can you discern the will of God both generally as well as individually. So I'm going to give you the, the cookie up front here. That's, that's the, the principles we're going to be looking at. 
And uh, people really wrestle with this. Um, you know, as the, the further we go in discipleship, it seems like sometimes the harder it is to, to really know what God's will is in specific instances because we find out some of the gray areas and the complexities of issues. Um, and we're going to take a look this morning at how uh, God gives us insight into this, uh, specifically through the life of David and uh, the life of uh, Saul. And as I was kind of pondering it this week, um, one of the things that my wife and I do is uh, we listen to books as we're commuting in the morning and in the afternoon. So we're driving into Portland and we have this horrible commute, um, so we pop, pop in a uh, set of CDs, books on CD, and we've been uh, going through the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. So we just finished the second book. And I don't know how many have actually read Tolkien's uh, books, and uh, quite a few of you. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian man, and, and he, uh, he, when he wrote it, he wrote it just as a as a story. But we know that stories that are written uh, come from a place in the heart, whether they're fictional or fantasy or uh, actual true life events, and that. What you're seeing is an expression of some of the Christian character that J.R. Tolkien had in the characters that he develops through the book. And I think that uh, one of the heroes in uh, The Lord of the Rings is uh, Frodo's uh, friend yes. named Sam Woods. And Sam is uh, actually, he's a great hero. Uh, and where we ended up at the end of the second book is where uh, Frodo, carrying the burden of the ring to take it to destruction, to overthrow evil, um, is going into the, the black land. And uh, they're led by a guy who, a guy who really wants this, uh, this token, this ring of power for himself. And he leads them into a place of peril, into a, uh, an ancient being's nest. Uh, it's called Shelob. And it's like, in the, in the uh, movies, they make her out to be a spider, because that's kind of the way it's described. Well, what happens is, is that Frodo and Sam come through this and actually overcome uh, the, the peril in the den, and uh, Frodo then gets stung, and, th- and Sam thinks he's dead. And so Sam, defending fiercely his master, fights off this this beast that's never been never been beat before. And, and so in many ways, you know, I'm thinking, okay, this is like David and Goliath, right? Sam takes on Shelob, and, uh, and he prevails. And he goes to his master's side, and he sees that his master has died. But in his heart, he thinks he can't be dead, because that would be a tragic end to this story. Um, evil would not be overthrown. And he has to make a decision about what to do. Because uh, the enemy is coming, and so he takes this ring of power off of his master, and he hides. And uh, he finds out subsequently that his master's not dead at all. He's just been stunned. He's stunned, but not dead. And he makes an incredible statement. And I think this is straight from J.R. Tolkien to us. Sam said, you know, I should have trusted my heart. It's the best part of me. 
I shouldn't have trusted my head. I knew my master was alive and I should have never left his side. And I thought about that because there's a difference in what's being taught today through mass media uh, that we should trust our feelings, right? You watch Star Wars and it says, Luke, turn off your computer, don't trust reality, trust your feelings. That's different than what J.R.R. Tolkien's saying. He's saying the heart is the central most important part of a person. And from the heart flow all of the issues of life. And we know that that's true. We read it in God's Word. We read it in the Proverbs. We saw it as we were going through the early part of Samuel, how the, the condition of the heart is what God's looking at and how that affects how we live our lives and the decisions that we make and how ultimately we can discern God's will. And when we make mistakes, how we can get back on track. Right? And so what I would like to say this morning is the heart is the best part of us. It's the part that God created um, that we need to pay attention to the most. Because it's how God is working and transforming our lives is through the, the transformation of our heart. And uh, so with that said, I guess that's my introduction. And that's why I wanted to start in Psalm 103, because... It really gives us a perspective on who God is and who we are in relation to him. And I think that that's important for understanding this passage about David and Saul. So, can anybody sum up where we're at in as we got through chapter 22? Yes, sir. I was just wondering if I chase around on that one. Yeah. Sure. Where it says, the heart is deceitfully wicked, though. Ah, yes. I mean, you've got to balance the two options you have. Yeah, let's, the right part of your heart probably Right, and, and that's the, the danger that I didn't, uh, I didn't fully disclose there, is that uh, when the enemy made a play for God's creation, what did he go after? He went after the heart. Because it was the disbelief in what God had proclaimed as true and real, and embracing a lie that led to uh, sin entering in and corrupting all of God's creation. And so the enemy was not concerned necessarily about Eve's behavior. He was concerned about her heart. Same thing with Adam. And so the enemy wanted to corrupt the heart. And that's what we understand has happened. Sin has corrupted the heart. And that heart of humanity... Um, we understand has a, uh, a linkage all the way back from today, all the way back to Adam. And we know that because we read Romans chapter 5, and it talks about uh, Adam sinned, and as a result of Adam's sin, all have sinned, and that the proof of that is that all die. And it's saying basically that we're related to Adam by this corruption of the heart. But what God is about doing, what's God about doing? Is he, he's, he's worried about changing the heart. And I know that that's true because it talks about the new covenant that we'll be given a new heart, right? It doesn't say we'll be given a new Mercedes or that we'll be given a cure for cancer. It says that we'll be given a new heart because all of the issues of life uh, come from there. So uh, the danger is, is that if you have an unredeemed heart, um, then sure enough, that can be a place of great evil. But uh, in a redeemed heart, God is actually working to transform you. Maybe, I guess I'd be more comfortable with your statement if we modify it to, say, God's heart, <laughs> maybe not mm -hmm. our heart, 
you know, so David was a man after God's own heart. I, I really want to be careful of Disney-esque okay. <laughs> theology, you know, right. because it really, it really goes down the whole path of uh, uh, postmodernism and all that kind of well, it, it certainly can, and this is the struggle that we have against the flesh, because the flesh wants to call itself apart and command uh, our attention. Um, and where I'll give you the uh, the conclusion of the day, so that we can start with the conclusion, then we can move uh, Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-nine, uh, verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we're, we're reading about God's calling, intention in our life, his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, com, to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is talking about... Um, being conformed to the image of the Son is that uh, transformation of the heart that occurs that um, makes one a uh, person after God's heart. So we read that David was, was chosen as king and Saul was rejected because David had a heart that was after God. And so we want to understand what does that mean to have a heart after God? It means to be conformed to the image of his Son who is God in the flesh. And uh, we actually see that a couple of chapters later in Romans when Paul turns from his theological treaties to application. And the first thing he says is he says, Therefore, in chapter 12, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we, we won't fully unpack that, but what I want to point out is that it's all about the heart, it's all about transformation, and what God is doing to conform us to the image of his son. And that's what we should be looking at in the life of David, because even though David um, is a predecessor to Christ and a type of the messianic king, um, we, have, we need to look at the transformation that happens in David's life that reflects this heart after God. Because I think that's the primary message in Samuel. It's not that David was a great guy. There were lots of great warriors. Um, it's not that David was even a great king. Because there were more successful kings than David that got much less press. Um, but David went through a transformation from a shepherd boy uh, who understood that God cared about him and would fight for him to a servant of the, the king in heaven, recognizing how he related to God and able to play that out to the end of his days with failure and everything in there. So we want to take a look at the transformation that's happening in David. So that's why he's the protagonist of the story, because there's a change that's occurring in him. And this change is uh, the transformation and the refinement of his heart. Okay, I said a lot about that. Is that helpful, Tim, or do you still look doubtful? No, let's call with Samuel. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, sir. Could you elaborate just this much more? 
Um, all through the Bible it talks about heart. We've all heard it, we've all the heart of God, the heart of this, your heart. The heart's a physiological form. It can't do rational thought. Correct. Or anything. Why do they refer to that of the heart? Is that anyway? Well, they weren't ignorant of physiology. Um, and they knew that the heart was central to life. Life is in the blood. And uh, if you lose the heart, you lose the person. And so when they talk about uh, the innermost being, and they don't have language. I mean, we don't have language for this other than physical phenomenal language to describe uh, a spiritual reality. Um, and the spiritual reality is, is that we're more than this flesh and blood. I know that we're more than this flesh and blood because we were created from dirt, so we're dirt clods, we're not pond scum. And uh, into that dirt, God breathed life. And um, man became a living being, and there is a relationship to an eternal creator. And so that's what they refer to as the heart, is this spiritual component of a person that we understand... Um, transcends the physical reality. So, if you've ever been in the presence of someone that passes away, there's a very uh, a distinct transition where the person is gone. The heart is no longer there. And it's more than just physiologically the, the physical heart stopping beating. So, when they're looking for phenomenal language that can describe this innermost being, the spiritual component of a person, that's the the organ that they chose. Sometimes they chose uh, bowels or liver, liver or kidneys. And the idea is the same, is that these are essential components necessary for life um, that without them you can continue to live. And so, um, so that's why phenomenal language is used. Let me quickly sum up where we were in 1 Samuel as I went on to this long diatribe about the heart. Um, it is about the heart of David and about the heart of Saul. And what we've seen in the last few chapters is the disqualification of Saul as king and the qualification of David as king. We understand that uh, God has anointed two kings, right? He anointed Saul because the people said, we want a king and this is our choice. And he said, okay, here you go. Let me tell you what's going to happen. And sure enough, it does. It plays out. And then there's another that because Saul is not able to rise to the occasion and actually have a heart that's after God, that seeks what God's will is for his life, uh, another is anointed, and that's David. And that David is anointed while Saul is king. And Saul kind of picks up on this uh, as he sees God working through the life of David, and he becomes exceedingly jealous of David and ultimately makes him his enemy and wants to totally destroy him. And that's what's happening here, is that uh, Saul has finally disclosed his full hand to everybody around him, and he said, I'm going to kill David. He is my first priority. He is the biggest threat to me. Now, he doesn't say he's the biggest threat to God's kingdom. He says he's the biggest threat to Saul. And, uh, and so Saul uh, has this campaign to wipe out David. And we saw in the previous uh, chapter... That uh, for two chapters, that David is on the run, and he goes uh, on the run. He goes to the prophet Samuel, then he gets counsel from his friend uh, Jonathan, 
and then he goes to the priest. And the priest uh, intercedes for him and actually gives him uh, what God's uh, will is. He actually tells him, uh, gives him some uh, advice from God. Use, it, use that word loosely. Um, and Saul finds out about this through an Edomite named Doeg, and he brings him before him, uh, the, the priest, Ahimelech, and he questions him. He says, did you give an oracle of God to David? Did you give the weapon of Goliath to David? Did you feed the man? And uh, he says, well, yeah. You know, he told me that he was on your mission. And uh, we could delve into that and look about how culpable Ahimelech was, how justified Saul was. But what the short of it is, is that Saul was enraged. And he was going to take out this priest and his whole household. In fact, he takes out a whole city. And as soon as we get past this here, we'll take a look at where that city is. Um, the, the priestly city of Nob, which is on the Benjamin Plateau, and I'm going to zoom in and point out here. Um, okay, so here is Nob, right here. Here's Gibeah where Saul is. Uh, here's Nob. A little bit further down is the city that later becomes Jerusalem. And uh, what happens is, is that Saul instructs that nothing be left. Scorched earth policy, level the city, burn it, kill everybody, kill all the animals. And this Edomite, who is an enemy, ultimately, of uh, the Jewish people, um, says, sure, I'll do that. And he goes and kills them all. One escapes. And he comes to David, and David realizes that it was uh, a result of his action that caused this priestly family to be wiped out. That's where we pick up in chapter 23, is that David has acknowledged to Abiathar that he knew on the day when Doab the Edomite was there that he would surely kill Saul, and uh, he's brought about the death of every person in your father's household, so stay with me, don't be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, and you are safe with me. So we read in chapter 23, then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against uh, Keliah and are plundering the th threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keliah? But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keliah against the ranks of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keliah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keliah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keliah. So let's take a look at uh, where that is. Um, I, I realize that in the back it's probably difficult. All you're seeing is a red dot on the screen, but I'll try and be animated enough that you can make it out. So David, on the run, first he went to know. Then he went down here to uh, the plain, to the city of the Philistines called Gath. From Gath, he went to Adulam, which is in uh, the foothills here called the Shvelah, and uh, hung out in the caves called the Stronghold because it's underground. He, uh, he had gone over, uh, way over here, into Moab to secure a place for his family. He had come back to Adulam, to the Stronghold, and the prophet Gad said, don't hang out here. Saul's going to come and get you. 
So he left and he went into the hills here of Judah. And uh, this city here, Hebron, is kind of like the capital of this region. It's a, a major, uh, uh, historically, this is where Abraham uh, bought the field to bury his wife, uh, Sarah, and Abraham himself is, is uh, buried here in the same cave, and Isaac, and so you have the patriarchs having a very significant uh, play in what's going on here in this area of Judah, and specifically the city of Hebron. Well, when David leaves these caves of Adelaide, he goes up here to the hill country um, to an area that is nondescript. So they give it a, a name in the Bible, but basically it's about, you know, right in here. It's in between Adullam and Hebron. And he's hanging out in the hill country, and that's where he gets this message um, that the Philistines have come against this city back near where he was in uh, Keilah. So David had just come from there. The prophet had said, get out of here, right? And yet he's hanging out here in a safe place, relatively safe, although his men still don't feel safe. And uh, he hears that this city is under siege. Now it turns out that this is a walled city. And uh, so a walled city is, is fairly secure from, from most raiders. Well, the Philistines come in, and of course you're right next to the Philistine territory right here, and they're making a siege, and these people are in distress. What would the king do? What's the king's job? To protect, to provide, and to serve. So what would the king's response be? Let's go protect. Let's go provide. Let's go serve. And that's exactly the response of David's heart. But he's not ignorant of... The, the peril in making that decision. Now, interestingly, you don't see Saul in this picture. The last picture you heard about Saul was that he had gone in because David had been up here at Nob and had visited the priest. Saul destroyed a city. He didn't protect. He didn't provide. He didn't serve. He leveled the ground. So you see this contrast between these two parts. David's heart is, hey, these guys are under siege by an enemy of the people, the Philistines. And uh, he goes to God and says, what do I do about this? Uh, the topographical maps really help with this, actually. Okay. But uh, the city that, that he's going to protect looks like it's out on the plain. Yes. Looks like it's really close to what the Philistines' territory is. It, it is. The, this is actually plain right here. I mean, if you stood in Gath, Today, you look out, it's flat and green. And so this is a, an area that's very flat, kind of a sandy, lonely soil, um, and uh, very rich as far as growing stuff. As you move up from there, by the time you get to Ezekiah, if you recall the pictures I showed of Ezekiah, and where the battle of David and Goliath took place, which was right here in this valley of Elah, um, you're into an area of hill country, they call the Shvelah, and you'll see this word show up in the Bible from time to time, and it's called the Shvelah, uh, or Shepelah, is what if you pronounce it literally in English, it's Shvelah. And uh, in this area, there's a transition of the geography, so it's, it's like foothills. The real rigid, high, uh, rugged mountains are here 
in central Judah. Um, but in this straight law, you actually have hills, and so it's not completely indefensible. Yeah, I guess my point is that that's kind of the front lines, if you will, yes. of the Philistines. Yes. And you notice that Saul isn't out there. No. Saul's <laughs> hanging out. Where, where does Saul hang out? This yeah. almost the whole time. Yeah, he's hanging out, you know, eating pomegranates up here in, in Gibeon. Saul of Gibeon. You know, he's, he's a Benjamite, and he's not going to leave Benjamin, uh, even though he's the king of all of, of Israel. And, uh, and so, sure enough, this is the front lines right along the Shvelah, because the Hebrew peoples were there, and they were inhabiting the hill country, which nobody wanted at the time, and, uh, and the Shvelah, because they had to be able to grow food and stuff for themselves. So the Elah Valley, for example, was fertile, and they grow stuff there. Um, and sure enough, that's the front lines, and so the Philistines would naturally attack these areas, and that's why they came against Soko, and that's when they, you know, the Battle of David and Goliath took place. So, David has retreated here by uh, a prophet's uh, oracle. So don't hang out here, go there. And uh, he recognizes that Saul is still trying to gather all sorts of information on him, that he has spies. So Saul, one of the things you'll see is Saul looks to advisors, human advisors, and spies, and even the word of the enemy to tell him what's going on. He does not seek the Lord. What David does, the first thing that David does when he hears about this, he has his heart for God and his people, and he consults the Lord. That's what it says here. Um, so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Goliath. But David's men said, Hey, that's, that's stupid. What do you want to do that for? Here we're relatively safe. Because we know this hill country, and you're coming out here to the front lines to fight somebody who you're not even responsible for fighting. It's somebody else's job. It's Saul's job. And you're going to put us at risk to go save these people? And uh, David uh, inquired once more of the Lord. So he didn't go to his men and try and make a persuasive argument. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keliah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David is ignoring um, what the worldly reality is and trusting in God's expressed will for this circumstance. Now, think about how often this comes into play in your own life, where you look at the conditions of the world and it would tell you to do one thing. And yet, in your heart, you know that that's not right. Because God is speaking to you about what his calling and will is on your life. And you have this, this battle between the flesh and the spirit of God. And, uh, and you have to discern in that what is the will of God. Well, David sought the will of God and God told him. Now, we would love to have this happen today, wouldn't we? Uh, we get into uh, an area of understanding God's will for us, and I'll divide it into two categories. We'll call it God's uh, general will, which we can clearly, going through the principles of the Bible, we can say, yeah, God clearly has a general will for mankind. But then where we struggle is God's individual will. 
What does he want me to do in this situation, in this place, right now? That's where you find yourself every day, when you wake up. What is God's will? Now, David, having the eyes of God, because he had a heart after God, said, I see God's kingdom being attacked, and God's people being put in peril. Even though I'm not the seated king, I'm going to respond as a king would, and go and save these people. And he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, that's exactly what my will is. Go for it. So he does. So David and his men went to Kaliah and fought with the Philistines. And he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants, inhabitants of Kaliah. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Kaliah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now, remember we talked about the ephod as that little... Uh, Vester thing that they would wear that had the uh, 12 stones on it for the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. And it also had uh, the Urim and the Thummim in it. It was a container for this way of doing, uh, uh, getting uh, guidance, divine guidance from God. And so when it talks about that uh, um, the priest would consult the, the, uh, the ephod, uh, basically, it was a way of casting lots to determine what the will of God was. And you see this practice uh, very common all the way up through the New Testament time. And, uh, and we think, well, how can that work? You know, I mean, it's like, I don't know what to do, so I flip a coin. Heads, this is your will, God. Tails, this is your will. But that's kind of what it is. Pardon? Gideon, in fact, Karen and I were talking about that this morning. It's like, okay, I've got to put this towel out on the balcony. If it's wet in the morning, it uh, means you're in the Northwest. It's dry. <laughs> so what would be the fleece we put out here? Or if it's dry in the morning, and I'm not in Arizona. <laughs> so uh, sure enough, people put God to the test, and they're asking a yes or no question. And that's what's asked here. Yes or no? Should I do this, Lord, or not? And uh, basically this divine coin flip comes and it says, do it. Right? And that's what's occurring here. Now, I wish I had the uh, Urim and the Thummim today, because I would love to be able to wake up tomorrow morning and cast lots and know exactly what the will of God is. Okay, I'm struggling with this. A lot in my life, okay, the whole thing, and, and my friend Bobby here knows. But, um, okay, so in verse 4, it says, mm-hmm. David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise and go, and I will deliver the Philistines. Okay, so this is an audible voice where somebody is, I mean, he, he is inquiring of the Lord and getting a real response, Okay, which he acts on. Pardon? Which he acts on. He acts on the... He takes the, action on yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Now, my notes to myself are, okay, first of all, David asked twice. <laughs> but he like got an answer both times. Yeah, he did. Um, but that was Go okay. to Gideon. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that's probably okay. But, but all right, so this whole thing is an area that I think a lot of us, you know... Okay, if you're a follower of Christ, you made that commitment, you want to do His will, mm-hmm. but you don't know 
if it's to take that job or that job, right. or to do this thing or that thing, or to join this church or that church, or or the list goes on and on and on and on. And on. Right. Okay? So what I'm pointing out is that David got a specific answer, at least in verse four. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know about the rest of it quite yet, but uh, well. I mean, there's specifics, and then there's... Right, and that's, in in the general will of God, we have no problem with, right? Um, We can pretty much discern that from the Ten Commandments, that's pretty clear, black and white. It's the gray area in the individual application that we struggle with, and that's what you're struggling with. And you're saying, well, it's unfair. God spoke to David. Exactly. (laughs) I don't hear him speaking to me, and I'm listening. Yeah. Right? But isn't it interesting that even with a verbal response, he had to ask again? Well, one of the things that we do, again, we have phenomenal language. Phenomenal means that it's based upon uh, the observance of what you see in reality. So, uh, how does God speak to people? We don't know. We honestly don't know. Unless you've been spoken to directly by God... Um, you don't know what that is. Now, I will claim that everybody in here has been spoken to directly by God. Um, it's the problem is, is that we, we expect a booming voice, right? Or we expect a flashing road sign. I think that was L.A.'s story. Um, you know, we, we... Yes? Well, many years ago, our son was in a car accident. And speaking of God talking to you, he wanted to commit suicide because he heard the girl got hurt. And we were praying. And God spoke and said, it's going to be okay. And we were sued for $300,000. Well, three years and a day went by. I should back up. Three years and a day went by because God said it was going to be okay. We got subpoena, and we were sued for $300,000. We went to court, um, were appointed a lawyer by our insurance, and the first thing that lawyer said to us, we'd never seen him before, he said, don't say, God, why me? Say, God, what do you want me to learn from this? After that was over, we never could find that lawyer again. And, and I've had those kinds of experiences where I've been out on the mission field and I've had uh, uh, divine intervention and, and afterwards I always ask the question, really Lord? Did you say that? Because I think that what happens is sometimes it's necessary for us to get a booming voice. And that's why I started with Psalm 103 this morning. Because that's a booming voice. God's telling us that he loves us. That well, he everything for turned out good because the mom sued us for three hundred thousand for lost wages, and they said, "When did you work? Where do you work?" She said, "I haven't worked for ten years." Oftentimes, that comes through a general revelation of God's will. And what happens is, is when we adopt that personally, it then becomes an individual revelation of God's will, and it guides us. And someone so, said to me, what language did he speak to you in? 
And, and uh, well, what language did he speak to you? English? I don't know. I accepted what I felt. Yes. And, and that's what I think happens, is that um, it isn't a booming English language, okay, I'm God and you're not, and this is my word. <laughs> uh, I think that that can happen. I don't discount any of Samuel, that. He Pardon? called Samuel, where he yeah. really heard a voice right. saying Samuel, right. and he right. came with him, what do you want? And, and we have evidence of those types of things occurring in the Bible. However, I don't think they're normative. And I don't think it's that God wants us to struggle in trying to understand when he's speaking to us. Rather, he wants us to develop discernment such that we hear his voice when the world is competing with it. Because that's what happened in the garden. A challenge came against God's word, and that drowned out to that person, Eve, in her heart, the, the word of God. So that she didn't hear what God was saying to her, even though it was perfectly clear. And I think that that's why God allows this transformation to occur. He could have taken David and made him fully formed with a crown on his head and a sword in his hand and a passion for God's people and said, go and kill all the Philistines. And David would have done it, right? No, what he did is he took David, a man after God's heart that was seeking the Lord, and that's what he does here, he seeks the Lord, and he changes over time as he learns to trust in the Lord. Now, let's talk about jobs. Let's talk about spouses. Let's talk about all of the things and the decisions that we have to make on a daily basis. Right? I'm going to give myself as an example because I don't know who else to give. Um, when I was uh, uh, out of college, when I first started college, okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. I was a, a street kid, um, uh, moved out of my uh, parents' home when I was 16 and lived on the street for two years and then ended up by virtue of an accident. I was uh, working in a cabinet shop and cut my hand in a saw and it qualified me for vocational rehabilitation. I was a high school dropout at 16 and uh, I found myself in the hospital not knowing what to do because the only vocation that I had had been taken from me. And uh, it's like, why God, or what do I do with this, God? I ended up getting a GED, taking some tests, because somebody pushed them in front of me and said, you know, you might want to go to college, get retrained. And I found myself accepted into college not knowing what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to serve, because I had become saved at this point. And uh, it's like, okay, I'll be a teacher. So I started out to be a biology teacher, right? And I, I think back on this. That was a strategic decision that God made on my behalf. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just looking at some test scores. And they said, you're gifted in natural science and mathematics. And I thought, okay, I'll do the natural science thing. I'll study biology. From my study of biology, I learned what they call systems theory. I learned how, you know, you were talking about the heart earlier, and how all of these systems um, work and relate to each other to make a whole. And all of a sudden, I became a holistic thinker. It changed the way that I viewed things in the world. Well, about halfway through this, as I was studying chemistry and physics and math, I decided biology is just a bunch of memorization of terms. I'm going to study the physics and the math because that seems really interesting. So I ended up studying physics and math, got my degree in mathematics, and had a, a second uh, degree in biology because I changed midway through. I had all of the credits. And uh, I ended up 
with a math degree on the street, again, four and a half years ago. And it's like, okay, now what do I do? How do you go and apply theoretical math and systems theory in the world? Well, I had been a printer. And so I thought, I'm going to apply for every printing job that I know of. Because I've got a little baby i got to take care of. I've got uh, stuff that I need to do. Um, I'm going to do whatever God sets in front of me to do. And I apply everywhere. And what happened was, it was a series of events that brought me into a transmission uh, company for the government. It was called Western Area Power Administration. And uh, because of my math and physics background, I knew electrical engineering at least enough that I could then take some advanced classes and complete my education. And uh, this guy took a chance on me. He looked at my heart and he said, you know, here's a guy with nothing, but I believe he can become something. And uh, he invested in me. I didn't know that this was going on, right? Um, he invested in me, and I learned power engineering. And that turned out to be one of the most fortuitous decisions that was made for me in my whole life. Because since that day, I've been working in power generation and transmission at a national level. Um, and today, I, they consider me a national expert in some of these systems. And uh, not that that's, you know, to, to tout anything, except for the power of God, I had no idea what his will was. So I did what he put in front of me to do. And when I think back today, this, the control systems that keep your lights on, that serve millions of people, are the result of what I learned in biology, and what I learned in physics, and what I learned in math, when I had no clue what I was doing. And that's a job, right? How did I make that decision? God basically made the decision for me. I was listening. What would you have me do today, Lord? And that was what it was. There was no great revelation, oh, by the way, Dave, 30 years from now, you're going you're gonna to see that this is where you're going to end up. That wasn't that at all. He was changing me to teach me to trust him to provide for my family um, in a way that would benefit not just my family, but would benefit millions of people in the world. And Karen reminds me of this all the time. She says, um, you know, what, what I do actually benefits millions of people. Your lights are on as a result of some of the work that I do. And uh, I then went to seminary uh, when I was in 1999. I've been working for a number of years successfully. I went to seminary because I really felt God's calling on my life very strongly to learn the Bible um, and to teach it. And uh, even though I had been in a discipleship program up to that point, there's nothing like throwing yourself into the middle of a theological cauldron to get refined. And so that's what I did. I went to seminary and uh, spent four years. I took the highest road that I could possibly take, which is what they call expositional ministry. And uh, I had to learn Hebrew, I had to learn Greek, and I had to learn well enough that I could read it on site and that I could translate that I could then interact with it in an interpretive way. Um, I had to learn to get up and speak, and I was paralyzed. I could not speak in front of people. I mean, you guys probably wouldn't know it today, but I could not get a word out. I would stutter so badly I could not speak. God taught me how to speak. He taught me how to write. He taught me how to think critically about his word. And I'm thinking, what has this got to do with power? I'm going into the ministry. So off to Russia I went 
to serve in uh, vocational ministry and uh, found myself back in the U.S. Um, not serving in vocational ministry. And that's when a friend of mine shared, he said, you know, there's 12 tribes in Israel. Only one of them served in the temple. The other 11 had vocational jobs. And yet they still were responsible for bringing God to the people. And bringing the people to God. And I thought, you know what, it's okay that what I do is power engineering. And that I'm not standing in a pulpit preaching or writing books, you know, like Joel Osteen and things like that. Because that isn't what God called me to do. What he called me to do is to be faithful in the things that are before me. Which is getting up this morning and feeling so terrible that I had to read Psalm 103 just to make it in the door. Because that happens from time to time. And I think, what is this futility that I'm participating in every day in my life? And yet, Karen says, you know, millions of people are blessed by that. Can you stay another day? Um, let's talk about partners in life. Um, when uh, I was looking for a, a wife, and, and I will share that I was uh, previously married, and through uh, tragic events of life, ended up uh, a single father raising two children. And uh, uh, so my, my kids were raised, and I had had this experience of, well, I'm going to be serving uh, avocationally in, in God's work. Um, and I was looking for uh, someone to share my life with. And I wanted a godly woman, obviously. But what does a godly woman look like? What does a person after God's heart look like? Right? Right? Well, the one thing that I read over and over and over in the Bible is about the loving kindness of God. His loving kindness. And I thought, you know what? Kindness reflects all of those attributes of God that we dearly love to draw near to. That's what I want to find in a woman, is kindness. Um, and from kindness comes loyalty, a fierce kind of loyalty and fidelity. It's the very thing that Samwise demonstrated to Frodo, which is where I started. The reason we love Sam as the hero is because he is kind. He cares about his master. And uh, so I had known Karen for 10 years prior to this. She was the only one that corresponded with me in Russia. Although when I told her that I was called to Krasnoyarsk, which is in central Siberia, um, she said, good luck with that. Send me some socks. Airwolf socks, yeah. Interestingly, uh, the, the heart of the hydroelectric industry in Russia is in Krasnoyarsk, and uh, there was a, uh, an incident at one of the generating plants there um, just a couple of years ago where it actually ejected uh, the turbine through the roof of the powerhouse, a huge dam. And this dam was built in the Cold War at the same time Grand Coulee was built. Grand Coulee Dam being the, the fifth largest powerhouse in the world, the largest in North America continent. And uh, it has the largest generators in the world at Grand Coulee. Uh, and the reason why 
they're the largest is because there was this Cold War going on, and they were fighting with Russia, and Russia put a unit of 680 megawatts in there, and the U.S. said, well, we've already built half this powerhouse, and they're 680. I guess we'd better do some that are 785. <laughs> so the biggest units in the world, the Grand Coulee, are a result of this war back and forth. Well, they didn't maintain these units, and head bolts broke, and it actually ejected this turbine through the roof of the powerhouse, killed... 130-some people. It was a catastrophic billion-dollar accident. And that's where I was going to serve. So would the Lord have used my ministry there? Absolutely. Can he use my ministry here? Absolutely. Um, it was more important for me to serve here and to be a servant to my wife, Karen, and to learn kindness at a level that I've never learned it before. Um, and I would have never guessed that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It took me that long to go through this transformation, through the events of my life, just like through the events of David's life, he's going through a transformation. His heart is being refined. He's being transformed into the image of Christ. He doesn't become Christ, but he's taking that heart that so desires the Lord's goodness and mercy and kindness and making that his own will. He's a man after the heart of God that carefully looks at what God's will is and says, can I join you in that? That's what he's doing here. He's going to join God to save these people. Now these people are ungrateful. They, they, they are saying, well, you know, it's great that you saved us, but now that you saved us, we know that Saul's going to come and wipe us out, just like he did the folks that know. Right? I got a couple minutes left. Let's go ahead and read what happens there after David saves these people. Uh, now, it came about when Abiathar, the son, this is verse 6, right? So David has saved the people there in Kilah. Uh, now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering the city with double gates and bars. So what's Saul's first concern? Killing David, not the Philistines. Right? So Saul summoned the people for war go down to Kilah and besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me uh, and my men to the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David said to his men, about 600, uh, or David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from there, from Keilah, and went to wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from there, uh, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God not, did not deliver him into his hand. So, you see a totally inappropriate action 
on the part of the reigning king, Saul. I'm going to go wipe out this city because I hate David. David had just saved the city. Was the city grateful enough to stand behind David? No, they were going to turn him over. Um, what did David do? He sought God's will. He sought God's will, not just in general. I'm going to protect these people from, from, uh, from slaughter, whether it be Saul or the Philistines, but also in particular, an individual. And he said, are they going to turn me and my men over? Should we leave here? And God said, yes. And I think that when we inquire of God with a heart that is after his will, um, his will is made known to us, even though we may not discover it for 20, 30, 40 years. It may take that long for us and our pea brains to grok what God is doing. But that doesn't mean that he's not working and that he's not speaking to us. We just don't hear very well. So we want to learn to hear better. We want to become transformed into the image of Christ. If we can think the very thoughts of God after him, not before him, but after him, um, we will be able to truly serve him and serve his kingdom and hear and discern what his will is. And that's what we're about doing in this class. We're about the transformation of our, our minds, of our hearts, so that we're not conformed to this world, but we're transformed into the image of his beloved son. And that in doing that, we're able to discern the voice of the world speaking to us and the voice of God speaking to us. And I wish it was a booming voice, folks, but it's not. It's a whisper in your ear saying, pay attention. What am I doing here? With that, we'll close. And I didn't quite make it through all the way through 23. Surprise. Uh, David ends up in Engedi, which is a, a great place. We'll show you pictures of that next week. Um, but think about that. Think about how God has, has transformed you to this day in your life to bring you to where you're at. Because who knows? Maybe that's what God's whole plan is, is to bring you to this day, that you're here this day for his purpose to express his will to the world his, his work let's go ahead and close in prayer Lord we just thank you for what you're doing in our lives uh, whether we understand it or comprehend it or not Lord we do ask that uh, we would not be so hard hearted and thick skulled that we couldn't hear your voice that you would uh, work through the events of our lives uh, to soften our hearts and to mold our, our minds such that we can discern the different voices in the world and that we can clearly hear yours so that we know how to act. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word that so clearly gives us um, your will and expresses who you are to us, even though we struggle with it sometimes in interpretation and, uh, and certainly in application. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us in that, to reveal all truth, um, your truth, and to um, lead us into what you would have us to do, Lord, that we can be truly people after your heart. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you would, uh, as we go from here, that you would keep us, that you would protect us, that you would provide for us. Lord, we thank you for your incredible service and loving kindness towards us. And Lord, help us to be uh, people that are the same way, that we serve and provide and protect. Um, to those that may even be ungrateful and not know who you are, Lord, we just thank you for that. We ask that you would be with Bob this morning. Uh, 
as he presents your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully among this congregation in this transformation activity that you're doing, Lord. We thank you for this, Lord, in your name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.